0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we discuss an important new book in the field of Islamic Studies by chatting with its author. Jeanette Juili's fascinating new book, Pious Practice and Secular Constraints, Women in the Islamic Revival in Europe, published by Stanford University Press in 2016, navigates practices and challenges of living pious ethical lives in inhospitable conditions. Through a finely textured analysis of quotidian practices of piety among conservative Muslim women in France and Germany, this book offers a nuanced and analytically rich examination of the intersection of ethics, secular conditions, and religious normative imaginaries. The strength of this book lies in the way it brilliantly hews the tensions of everyday life with sharp theoretical reflections on questions of ethics, moral agency, and gender. Although a commentary of aspirations of piety among Muslim women in Europe, this book also shows fractures in European promises of pluralism. Here is my conversation with Jeanette Giuli. Hello, Jeanette, how are you doing?
1: I'm fine, how are you?
0: Uh, Very good, thank you so much for your time and uh, for this uh, wonderful book. Uh, that uh, is teaching us so much about a very important uh, context and uh, set of questions that hopefully we'll get the chance to uh, talk about in detail today. Uh, Jeanette, uh, we have a tradition on new books in Islamic studies. And our first question is always biographical. Uh, could oh, okay. you share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar interested in Islam, uh, Muslim communities, and how you got to work on this particular project?
1: Okay, so biographically, so when I was uh, when I started my undergraduate studies in Germany, I was deeply interested in understanding myself a little bit better. I guess my mother is German, my father's from Tunisia, so that was you know one of my intellectual curiosities. So I started with Islamic studies as a major and political science as a minor, and when I did my something like a master's, the magister in German. Um, I then decided that I wanted to study Muslim communities in Europe. Before that, I was more interested in uh, in the, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, so I did another MA in anthropology and sociology uh, with a focus on migration and uh, ethnic minorities. And then I did my PhD in a kind of double program, anthropology and sociology, and began then studying um Muslims in Germany and France
0: now uh, let me begin with a broader uh, question uh, in relation to this book which is uh, let's talk a bit about the larger conceptual theme and argument that you pursue in this book yeah and I I found particularly interesting this framing that you have at the beginning of the book uh, this idea of uh, investigating uh, Muslims who are practicing Islam in inhospitable environments that in some ways forms the larger uh, bedrock of your project so could you share with us what the larger uh, theme is and the argument is that you're trying to uh, pursue in this book?
1: Yes, so um, in the beginning of the 2000s, when I started this book, um, there was still a lot of comparative literature on European countries, how they integrate uh, foreigners, migrant communities, relations to race and ethnicity, uh, religious pluralism and so on. And what came up in the literature was that countries and that has changed since then right so so we're talking really about the early 2000s um what is what came through this literature was that countries like the UK the Netherlands you know perhaps Sweden were considered to be these quintessential multicultural countries that endorsed multiculturalism and have tried to accommodate in various ways the religious and racial minorities Germany and France appeared as these um Countries resistant to multiculturalism, France for its strong Republican and assimilationist tradition and Germany, because of its um, particular understanding of Germanness as um, based in blood, um, just in 2000, really reviewing its kind of outdated, obsolete nationality law. Um, and since, and, and, and until then really kind of refusing even the idea of naming itself an immigration country. So Germany and France appeared as these kind of, um, countries that resisted, um, making space for, um, ethnic and religious minorities in terms of institution building, in terms of, um, giving them more space, uh, in, in terms of religious practices, um, at the same time, of also we saw in France and lesser known in Germany um, these headscarf affairs popping up in the public sphere. In, Ge- in France, of course, that was internationally mediated, uh, you know, uh, discussed in the media um, about the headscarf affair for schoolgirls. In Germany, it was less, you know, discussed but also very present within the national sphere um, about. Uh, teachers' headscarf, or in general, civil servants, uh, whether they were allowed to be ha- to wear headscarves or not. So we had at that time in both countries a kind of uh, anxiety around Muslim practices that, were, that seemed to me particular uh, and that deserved to be more studied, and I thought comparatively it might be interesting to bring them together rather than focus on one context, because then I could better understand how... Individuals in similar contexts, but nonetheless uh, in different discursive narratives on dis- dis- different discursive traditions, negotiate these con- similar constraints in particular kind of national ways.
0: Let's talk a bit more about the context of the study, which primarily situated in France and uh, Germany. And uh, you show and you argue that you know, oftentimes these two contexts are seen as very different from each other and so on, but you also emphasize that it overlaps that they have uh, so could you say a bit more about this uh, contextual uh, background of your study and what kinds of uh, uh, major features and overlaps uh, between these contexts that you identify
1: yes so as i said in the previous answer um france has a republican assimilation goals are being um uh, assimilated into the Republic as individuals and not as members of a community and uh, those who want to become French have to leave their religious and racial kind of background at home and appear in the public sphere as neutral French citizens um, and that of course had consequences for um, how Muslims were able or not were not able to negotiate their claims to religious difference and to accommodation of their practices in the public sphere, which is why, for example, we had these very passionate headscarf um, affairs throughout the 90s and the 2000s until 2004, when the law um, banning conspicuous religious science came out. Um, at the same time, France kind of... Um, holds up that it is a welcoming nation for immigrants, that it it considers itself a a nation that has uh, traditionally accommodated immigrants, but with the request, as I said, to kind of um, distance themselves from their ethnic and racial and religious background and then become French citizens, Uh, with the, the notion that French citizenship is something that is universal, whereas the other identities are particular don 't belong into a universal space um, in fra- in Germany however it's a quite different history um, German ness as I said before is uh, has been traditionally defined by uh, blood by race and interestingly even after the second world war, this has not been revised so in spite of um, uh, in spite of recruiting um, a large amount of uh, guest workers in the 70s, 60s and 70s to fill their um, their empty factories. Um, these migrants were not considered migrants precisely, but as guest workers. That means they come, they work and they go back. Obviously, they didn't go back. Obviously, they had children and children's children and uh, even the third generation was not yet considered German because of this idea of German as being, you know, based in blood. And so um, it took Germany quite a while to get around the idea that they are there to stay and that they should, you know, be accommodated, as I said. In 2000, finally, the nationality law was revised, and um, eventually it was possible for descendants of migrants to claim a nationality. And from that point on, we also see a kind of a new effort being made in Germany to discuss now, you know, the role of the Muslim community in in the German understanding of um, relation between church and state. Germany has a particular arrangement between the established churches and the state in their kind of cooperation with each other, which, of course, is quite different to um France, which I didn't mention earlier, which sees itself as a secular, I mean, a very like country, uh, where um, religion and, uh, and, and state is assumed to be very, you know, uh, clearly separated. Of course, scholarship has shown extensively that this, is not, this separation is not that easy, but that's the self-understanding, whereas in Germany, the self-understanding is that religious, in, uh, recognized religious institutions and the state... Uh, cooperating, so the question is now: How can or should Muslims also be kind of cooperating with the state? So these are the different, um, you know, backgrounds. But both uh, both made it more easy for uh, more difficult um, at the time that I I was, and even until today, I would say. But that made it more difficult at the time that I started to study these communities to uh, negotiate their particular religious practices within the public sphere, to search accommodation of their practices, for example, um, to ha- be granted the right to, inst- uh, to to establish schools, which is quite different, uh, different in contexts like the Netherlands or the UK.
0: Now, one of the major conceptual threads that uh, bind uh, this book is your uh, the way that you work with Aristotelian notions of ethics Mm -hmm. and uh, you yourself describe it as a rather eclectic approach that you follow (laughs) and I was wondering if you could say a bit more about this aspect of how you draw on and mobilize uh, Aristotelian notions of ethics in terms of this ethnography and the life uh, the pious lives that you examine in this yeah
1: yeah yeah so I mean eclectic I think because first of all I'm not a philosopher I'm an anthropologist and I would say probably all anthropologists (laughs) of ethics that work with Aristotelian notions, do it in a you know, eclectic or selective way, uh, because we are committed to our ethnographical fieldwork, to our interlocutors, and not to theories, right? To uh, to you know, to Aristotle, for the, for instance. So um, for me, what was interesting with Aristotle's understanding of ethics, of course, you know, and here I follow. Uh, in line with other anthropologists of ethics is that his concept is praxeological in nature it's praxis oriented it does not separate mind from body uh it doesn't fo- it's not like the kantian ethics uh, reason focused purely on reason so um it allows us to think uh embodied actions in connection and disciplines in connection with ethics um so uh what Uh, And and when I started to uh, study uh, ethical practices and started reading uh, Aristotle's work, again initiated through other anthropologists who were doing that at the time, um, I was particularly interested in two concepts, Um, the the more known perhaps concept of uh, Aristotle's Habitus that thinks about this constitution of the self through uh, repetitive self-disciplines. But then also the other concept of moral reasoning, moral reasoning as this kind of deliberation in context of difficulties, what is the right thing to do. And that really helped me to better get a grasp of my, my interlocutors' practices because they were concerned with two things. On the one hand, they they wanted to become, you know, good, pious, practicing Muslims, which was difficult for them, you know, to develop the the necessary self-discipline, to pray regularly, to um, dress in a certain way, to behave in a certain way. But at the same time, living in the context they lived, this was constantly... Uh, connected to how do you negotiate now these practices and these modes of lives in a context that is not that welcoming and where you def- really need to navigate these spheres. So, so the concept of the, you know, self cultivation of the habitus and of moral reasoning really became the framework of my book where in the first part I look at these efforts to constitute this pious self and then the second part I look at so how do they do that outside of their house right outside of the Islamic institutions how do they um, develop that or how do they na- navigate the secular, secular constraints as I say um, trying to figure out how, how, how to practice out there What I found interesting, perhaps just to add very briefly, was when looking at the literature among anthropologists who who were inspired by Aristotelian ethics, there was kind of a division in the field. Uh, You had those anthropologists who would pick up the concept of habitus via Foucault and a kind of post-structuralist lens to understand ethics as a modality of power and to think how power enables a certain way of being in the world. And then on the other hand, you had um, anthropologists of ethics who use the concept of moral reasoning to make a more humanist claim of, um, of agency that is independent of power structures. So I haven't seen scholars using both terms together, but each of these concepts for very different kind of ontological objectives. And for me, it was really interesting to bring them two together with the understanding that um, ethics and there are followed, you know, I would say, um, post-structuralist approach and, you know, following especially Talal Assad who thinks that power is a potential potentiality that enables agency. And um, and moral reasoning in that sense is not disconnected from, uh, you know, from. Self-cultivation, because self-cultivation through disciplines actually allows to develop the perception and the feeling that then allows for a moral reasoning. So that's just kind of the... Um, broader theoretical mm-hmm. framework in which in which that that discussion takes place mm-hmm.
0: so let's get to the ethnography and uh, uh, let's uh, get to the ethnography via another key concept uh, that uh, is very central to your work, which is this idea of affective learning communities that you mm-hmm. develop mm-hmm. uh, so could you say a bit more about how your ethnography showcases the interaction of knowledge and affect in the lives of the women uh, you study?
1: Yeah. So what I found really fascinating when sitting in these Islamic associations where women went to study, uh, taking Islamic classes in different subject matters, I was especially interested in those classes that um, were more practice-oriented. So how do you practice in contemporary life, uh, how can you, um, uh, how can you uh, use fiqh, for example, for everyday practices and so on and And what I found fascinating was the importance or the significance of the relations between the women they always call each other the sisters, right? So the kind of relations between the sisters in that learning context, where it was where the women never just said, "Okay, I'm learning some content, but I'm learning something that has an impact on my emotional state and being with these other women precisely nourish my faith so um, I was struck and I I, I specifically started to pay attention to that when one of the teachers came back from her maternity leave and told me I haven't been teaching this class for six months now and um, you know I miss the sisters and I uh, I felt my iman, so my faith was diminishing, and I really need that. I need to be with the sisters. I know the stuff that I'm teaching, but just being with them and talking with them and exchanging the, how, how these things make us feel is nourishing my faith. And um, and that was and then once I kind of paid attention to that, I saw it again and again how the teachers emphasized, you know, outside the class you should meet together. Uh, the, the centers were often organizing social events, um, you know, not connected to learning, so sport activities, cultural activities, etc., that really tried to cement that relationship. And I thought that was really something interested, interesting for me, that learning was never disconnected from with who do you learn and what are the feelings that you have with those where you share this learning space.
0: Now, w- another major... Uh, Theme and I, th- I thought a very productive uh, theme uh, uh, of uh, this book was uh, this idea that this process of cultivating a pious life is never linear. This, there is a, mm-hmm. non, a non, yeah. uh, non-linearity non to this process. And there mm-hmm. were some very interesting moments in your book where you show these uh, moments of doubt and apprehension mm-hmm. that many of your actors also uh, confronted. Uh, uh, I was wondering if you could share a couple of those moments. And then what kinds of... Pedagogical techniques were employed or uh, 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 drafted uh, as a way to address these moments of doubt and apprehension and so on. Could you say a bit more about this dimension of your of your project
1: yes, so as you said um, what was really interesting for me was how to what extent this this effort to constitute yourself as a pious self was more about the effort than the result so uh, the women constantly talked about that. Um, that you know there are fallbacks then you know doubts come out of out, out of the, the fallbacks and out of the uh, failure to to discipline yourself or to act morally in different contexts and and these um, doubts or fallbacks they could you know take place in very different contexts some somewhere related to just the simple fact that you lack the perhaps the will or the the energy to do certain things like waking up at four o'clock in the morning to pray or, you know, do this five times a day or, you know, uh, you lack the will to um, to dress in a certain way that would not, you know, draw attention to your beauty or something like that. Um, other other um, conflicts were connected to the difficulties they felt in enacting in practices in a context that was not... Where this was actually you know kind of stigmatizing right to to um, so the un, an inability for example to put to don the headscarf because of the fear of um, you know repercussions and um, and what I thought was interesting was when they brought these kind of conflicts and doubts toward, to their teachers and addressed them there um, there was the general pedagogy that was enacted by the teachers and by the kind of more senior peers was usually to focus on the intentions right the near rather than the um rather than the result so it doesn't matter if you fail but your intention should be right and you need to work on your attention rather than on the result and um and that was really conceptualized with um with the concept of the you know jihad enough so this kind of struggle against the lower self that is Considered to be part of the, you know, general trajectory. So it's a very different concept than assuming there's kind of a linear self-perfection going on because the GN Hard enoughs is something that everyone was clear about that this is something you do your whole life. You will never, you know, be as perfect as, you know, not needing that anymore. And that was interesting for me because, you know, given that I was working with this, you know, Aristotelian notion of self-cultivation, Aristotle didn't seem to have the same understanding. Because for him, ethical self-cultivation should uh, lead to a stable ethical habitus. And all these kind of failures to do so or doing so kind of without really feeling like to do it, was not considered ethics, right? That was kind of it was it was it was considered a failing state, but not part of the ethical work. So so that brought me to thinking of um, you know ethical kind of developmental stages in this nonlinear way, more messy way. Uh, but this doesn't mean that it was you know less taken seriously. It was just theorized differently with you know, and there I had to look at specific Islamic understandings of, of self-cultivation that sometimes departed then from Aristotle.
0: Let's return to uh, the larger theme of this book, which is uh, you know, practicing Islam in inhospitable environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a chapter in which you devote uh, uh, addressing uh, this question in the context of the everyday lives of uh, your uh, subjects, mm. uh, uh, where you talk about ways in which they navigate the hostile secular conditions in public spaces in France and Germany. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Could you say a bit more about how your interlocutors uh, negotiated and navigated that hostile uh, secular conditions and spaces in their everyday uh, lives?
1: Yes. So um, one of the crucial questions, of course, for all these women were um, the headscarf or no headscarf. I I mean, it really came down often to this question because uh, unlike, you know, again, to mention different contexts, like unlike the UK or the Netherlands, in Germany and in France, wearing the headscarf would have extreme repercussions on possibilities for professional careers. Many of my interlocutors, not all, but many were women who were first-generation students, university students who had a good education and who had professional aspirations, uh, aspirations that they not only connected to their own kind of individual desires for upward social mobility, but also connected it to this idea of, you know, our community is socially and economically marginalized and we need to kind of contribute to uplifting it, right? And uh, this goes through us and through accessing to, you know, good positions where we have, you know, some kind of influence, where we can, you know, shape public opinions and so on. And for many of these women... um, then the question was, uh, I cannot really do that if I wear a headscarf. Um, and, and I had a lot of uh you know, a lot of interlocutors who, who shared with me their, their struggles, their worries about figuring out what the right thing was. Because on the one hand, um they 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 wanted to wear the headscarf because they considered it a religious obligation that of which they were convinced. So conviction was always important, but, um, they also wanted to, you know, deconstruct stereotypes and, you know, be professionally active. And so, um, so they were in this kind of conflict, right? Um, what is better to, uh have wear the headscarf and then perhaps abandon a you know very promising professional careers and women had like very concrete examples right one woman who wanted to become a medical doctor one woman who was doing her phd but couldn't get you know a teaching position um and so on and so on and um and the question then was uh I can pursue my career, with you know, by abandoning the, the headscarf, but will I really be able then to deconstruct the stereotypes about Muslim women that I want to do? And I really wanted to get away from this idea, you know, one is submitting to one kind of constraint or, you know, resisting another kind of constraint, but... Uh, You know, women decided in very different directions. Some, you know, took off their headscarves. Some said, no, I can't do this because then I'm submitting also to the stereotypes that, you know, disenable us to be in this space. But I wanted to kind of hint to that reasoning, this moral reasoning that, you know, whatever their particular idiosyncratic uh, decisions were, really um, in the broader reasoning, it was about what is the right thing to do, Right. And um, and I thought that was quite interesting in all their struggles with, uh, you know, navigating secular spaces. It turned into a larger ethical endeavor where, um, you know, it was not just about we are suffering here and we cannot have our religious rights, you know, respected. But, um, yeah, what is the right thing to do? And that's an ethical challenge to us. And even the kind of difficulties we face are ethical challenges and how do we, uh, kind of work with them, you know, or how do we tackle them uh, in the best way possible? And then, of course, we—I had just other practical and kind of fun moments uh, when you know women try to that, you know, um, outside of these deeper ethical struggles, just you know, how do you pray if you're not supposed to pray? And you know, they were hiding in different spaces of their job in the library looking for you know, spaces to pray, sometimes I had to stand like the guard, you know, in some corner or hallway, and you know, while they were praying in the library, and I was kind of being the guard looking that no one comes to see them. So there are all these little struggles of, you know, in the everyday life, how do you adapt and kind of create your little techniques to circumvent interdictions to do the thing you feel you have to do.
0: So as a uh, final uh, substantive uh, question, uh, uh, Janet, let's uh, think a bit about the larger implications of this project. And you talk about this in your uh, uh, last chapter or epilogue. Uh, How do you see this project contributing to discussions, uh, current discussions around questions of Islam, citizenship and pluralism uh, in in the European context? What do you see the larger implications of this project?
1: Yes, so... um... One thing that i've I've seen in many debates at the time on you know citizenship and religious pluralism was this idea that religious citizens need to be make an extra effort to um, to kind of become part of the broader civic traditions. Um, they need to endorse some kind of secular, Uh, citizenship ethics, you know, if possible, perhaps either distance themselves from their religious ethics, or if not possible, then at least try to translate their religious ethics into secular ethics. And, you know, authors like, or scholars like Habermas um, and other authors who work on cosmopolitanism have, uh, Ulrich Beck, for example, have written a lot about that. And, and obviously I was not satisfied with that. Um, and looking at my interlocutors and their struggles through their ethical, like religious or pious ethical understandings, always integrating their individual pious struggles into this broader commitment to a social good, right? What I said before, this kind of moral reasoning that is committed to um integrating the individual struggle into a broader social good and making and kind of negotiating really for the sake of others, not just for the sake of yourself. Um, there was something really interesting in that approach where I felt that you know that can help me to rethink um, you know these kind of dominant approach to citizenship um, and uh, and 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 I came to this kind of understanding that. Uh, for pious individuals, the care for the self and the care for others is not disconnected, and um, that that this might help us to broaden up uh, these um, these kind of dominant secular citizenship ethics that require either translation or distanciation from religious ethics but you know here's an example that shows us that there are different trajectories that you know, that uh, lead to citizenship ethics, and they could be, you know, also religious inspired. Um, so for me, this was really an interesting moment in thinking about religious ethics, how they contribute to enlarging concepts of citizenship ethics. And that, of course, um, then fits into, you know, a broader space of how can we think more pluralistically around citizenship ethics.
0: So as we're coming towards the end of our time, uh, Jeanette, could you uh, share with us uh, what's the next uh, uh, project?
1: Yeah, so my next or my current actually book project that is entitled right now, the working title is Between Religious Ethics and State Discipline, the Islamic Artistic Scene in the post-77 UK. Um, and here I investigate uh, Muslim popular culture, especially music and performing arts in urban Britain, at a time when Muslim youth has become a particular target of preventing violent extremism programs in the UK. So I'm looking on the one hand at how pious British Muslim uh, Muslims kind of um, enact or use culture to fuse piety and moral norms with artistic creativity and how they uh, negotiate different cultural and religious ideals, And at the same time, I look at how um, then particular state discourses and state policies around the pre- preventing violent extremism narrative have, you know, at different times, differently uh, tried to cooperate or, um, I don't want to say co-opt, but have tried to work with that cultural scene.
0: Bias Practice and Secular Constraints, Women in the Islamic Revival in Europe by Jeanette Joely, published by Stanford University Press. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jeanette, uh, for your time for this uh, 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 wonderful uh, book that I'm sure will spark many conversations in multiple fields and uh, for your erudition and comments uh, today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So this was my conversation with Jeanette Juvelli about a brilliant new book, Pious Practice and Secular Constraints. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Stay well, take care, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.
1: Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job.